Greetings and welcome. You're listening to the Genesis Podcast, the official podcast of the Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. It is our goal to inspire one another to change the world by effectively living in the way of Jesus. Check out our website, thegenesisstory.com. There, you can learn more about us, where and when we meet, ways to invest and support, but most importantly, how to get connected. Thank you for spending time with us today. They knew what I was talking about. (laughs) Good morning. Glad you guys are here live and thankful for those who are watching online and those who are listening later. We appreciate you, appreciate your input uh, to the things that we're doing. If you would like, you could subscribe. It does something. I'm not sure what. It makes us better. Um, Or uh, give us a like on the different platforms that we're at. All those things are appreciated. If you don't like us, just keep it to yourself. Um, I know a few, well, I know someone talked to, has had conversations about our last few conversations um, and have gotten a lot of feedback uh, regarding this. And so we're not always popular, um, but we're, we're, we're real. Um, So anyway, thankful again for everyone who's here. Thankful for those who donate and contribute to us financially so that we're able to do these things. And we're going to pause. We're going to pray as we again talk about hell. Uh, I don't know if this will be the last one or not. I I don't want to beat this into the ground too much. Um, But there's a few other things maybe we could talk about, so we'll see how it goes. We'll see how this week transpires. And I always love the questions in our dialogue afterwards because that actually provokes other things to maybe talk about where the conversations can go. But let's pause, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord God, once again, it's with humility that we come before you, recognizing so clearly of our inability to fathom so much of what we talk about, that we are really outside of our experience and understanding in so many ways. And we desire in this posture to be receptive to your spirit's leading, the spirit of Christ's moving, the dialogue that we encounter in scripture and with one another and allowing these things to shape our thoughts, give us something to work with and work through. And I pray that that would happen, that as we are here, each one of us would have a word, a song, something to contribute to the conversation that we're going to have here this morning. We are grateful and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't even know really like what we're made of as human beings. We don't, there's so much that we don't know. There's so much mystery. Uh, we, we can't see the outer edges of the universe and it's just constant. There's so much we don't know. Most things we don't know. 
So like to presume, well, I know exactly who will be in heaven and who will be in hell and if there's a hell and what that's like and what heaven's like and what God is exactly like. Um, that seems a little presumptuous. Yeah, how do we, but how should we think about heaven and how, how is it helpful or hurtful to a person's faith? Um, let me think about that. Well, I think when we when Jesus spoke about the kingdom, which was his favorite topic, he wasn't talking about this like palace you go to when you die. I mean, he was saying the kingdom is among you. It's here. It's present. It's he inaugurated the kingdom with his resurrection. So, uh, you know, I think when we talk about heaven and hell, a lot of times we're making bad translations from Jesus's teachings, which are a lot more about the here and now than about some future after death. So I guess the question I find myself asking is, how am I creating and engaging and participating in and receiving the kingdom of God in my day-to-day life in the here and now? And how am I creating hell on earth? How am I hurting people? How am I committing violence against my enemies, physical or verbal or even in my heart? How am I creating a hell for myself? Uh, Some of the people who speak and preach most loudly about how everyone else is going to hell seem to have ironically created a hell for themselves uh, in isolating themselves from their neighbor. Uh, So how am I doing that? Or how am I bringing and participating in the kingdom now? You got to (laughs) train. Well, I guess those lives will be in your hands then. <laughs> That's what a lot of people say. Mine. They're not in my hands. They're in God's anyway. That's like if God were waiting on me to get this right. <laughs> it's like, well, that person would have gone to heaven if you hadn't started talking about the kingdom. Does God get what God wants? I think so, which it says God desires all men to be saved. And women. Okay. <laughs> Your great, great way to start is have Rachel head things off. As we continue a discussion about hell, um, one of the passages in Scripture that comes up a lot is one that we want to look at today. And just like last week, we looked at a passage in Revelation to try and just get some different flavor that could be involved with that. That's what I want to do today as well. And the hope is that it frees us from being locked into a way of thinking that blinds us to other alternatives or maybe even what's there that we're missing. And so today we're going to be in Luke 16. We're going to be talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And so I'm going to start in Luke chapter 16. Um, You know, I think I might have given you the wrong verses Rick, but it starts at verse 19. I think I said nine, so uh, it goes to 28. We'll go to 28. Okay, good. Sorry about that. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying against his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Mm. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. Jesus goes on and says, hey, if they had the prophets and didn't believe them, they wouldn't believe even if someone came from the dead. And I want to start off with reminding us that like the passage in Revelation that's a certain literature, we want to look at this literature-wise instead of just literally at the beginning. Because if we don't look at it literarily, we can misunderstand things. And the first thing we need to recognize is that it's a parable. Now, I know that I have at times said this wasn't a parable, and I know other people have said, well, it's not a parable. It doesn't say it's a parable. But we know it's a parable because Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and this is speaking to a group where the Pharisees were there. We also know it's a parable because there was a parable right before it that began with the exact same words. Right? It started with, there was a rich man who received an accusation. This is, there was a rich man who would dress in purple. There's too many similarities to say that it's not a parable. And the idea of a parable is to present a truth. It's a story that's trying to present something. And Jesus spoke figuratively in a lot of ways that no one wants to take literal. Like if your eye offends you, pluck it out, right? We're quick to turn away, huh? He doesn't mean that. Or even if, you know, unless a man hates his father, mother, sister, brother more than me, then they can't be my disciple. Does Jesus really want me to hate my family? Or is he trying to present something that they would understand whether you're gonna hold on to the tradition of your family or follow after Jesus? Why would those be figuratively but then this one all of a sudden becomes literal. Once again, that seems to be the case when it comes to the ideas about hell. We want to go to literal for some reason instead of maybe seeing if there's more taking place there. And there's a lot of things that Jesus say, said that we, we don't fully understand. And if we take them literally, we miss the point. But you might say, okay, what is the point here? I mean, isn't the story still uh, you go to hell and are tormented or not? But I think there's more going on here. And because we're so far removed historically from the culture and the language that we have trouble understanding it. When I was in uh, middle school, I had some friends who were from Vietnam. 
And they didn't speak very good English, and so they wanted me to help them teach English, which was a mistake, but I helped them gladly. I taught them things like that car looks cool and that car looks hot, you know, and that made things very clear for them, you know, even though it means the same thing, it's something totally different. I remember going to lunch, and they said, are you going to go lunch? And I said, uh-huh. And they said, do you want to eat this? And I said, uh-uh. And they were like, uh-huh. They were like, uh-huh means yes, uh-huh means no. And I was like, uh-huh. Right to us, we get that little nuance. To them, they were lost, right? Sorry if they're watching now. I apologize for all the things I taught you. The same thing is happening here. We are so far removed from the culture that we lose a lot of what is being said. And there's a couple of things that I want to look at that I, I think will give us a broader understanding of this passage. In the first slide there, Gil, we see in verse 19 that they would dress in purple. This is talking of the rich man and fine linen. And we also see in verse 27 that he had five brothers. Now, throughout Scripture, purple and fine linen were signs of nobility, signs of royalty. They were the presence that you were to be considered of value. You had royal stock, right? And the Jews and their descendants thought this of themselves, especially from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was very, even though it was the fourth son of Jacob, they became known as Judahites. And it was the the kingdom of Judah, and then there was the kingdom of Israel and the other tribes. So it was very pronounced and prominent. We see this in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8. Jacob gives blessing to his 12 sons, and he names Judah as the ruler over all the 12 tribes of Judah, as the son designated to receive all the promises bestowed to Abraham. In verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. In verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is come. Who, excuse me, till he whose right it is comes. Anyway, whatever. And the obedience of the people belongs to him. So as a result, the Jews were also known as Judahites, having received firsthand authority ruling from God. And can you guess how many full brothers Judah had? Five from Leah. Interesting, right? Just a coincidence. But wait, there's more. There's something else that's easy to miss because of the translation. The name Lazarus in Hebrew is the name Elias. Now, or excuse me, Eliezer. I was thinking of someone else. Abraham's chief financial officer, if you would, guess what his name was? Eliezer. So Jesus is telling a story and it has Abraham in it. It has a rich man who's prominent, who has five brothers, and it has another man named Eliezer. 
the Jews would immediately start putting pieces together. This is a story about something that is happening, something we're familiar with, something that we have experienced. In Genesis 15, verse 2, we see the prominence of Eliezer in Abraham's household. But Abraham said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? If I don't have a kid, he's going to get it all. We know the story. They did have a kid. So Eliezer got nothing. Well, we don't know what he got, but it doesn't tell us he got anything, right? He might have had a comfortable living there in Abraham's house. But there was this chance that Eleazar, because of his position, would inherit everything that belonged to Abraham. And Abraham was a pretty wealthy guy. It's interesting. And it says that this Eleazar, this Lazarus, longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. Remember the story in both Matthew and Mark of the woman who came up to Jesus and asked that her daughter be healed and the disciples tried to rush her away and she was a Gentile and Jesus said, it's not fit to give you know, bread to the dogs, which is what they referred to as Gentiles. And she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus said, woman, I haven't seen such faith. What are the chances that Eleazar is a Gentile? Well, he is. All these things start to fit together. The next slide, Gil, says, what are the chances that Jesus is talking to the Jews, specifically the Pharisees, who believe their ethnicity made them royalty over the Gentiles? What if that is part of the foundation of this story? How does it change what the purpose of the story is? And understanding. Remember that song, Father Abraham had many sons? Unfortunately, we do, right? (laughs) Well, Jacob was, of course, considered Abraham's son. And so were all of the children, including Judah. And so in verse 24 of the parable, the rich man calls him Father Abraham because that's what they would call the patriarch. And in turn, Abraham calls him son in verse 25. The rich man and Lazarus are both in the grave, Hades, but Lazarus is by Abraham's side. Some translations will say by his bosom. And the idea and the tradition was that you will be at the place with of someone prominent, and that's the place of position. Remember in John's gospel, the one who Jesus loved was there at the Last Supper leaning against his bosom. It was the same idea. They're eating together, and you are by his side. You are of importance to him. And so the idea is that this person, this Lazarus, this Eleazar, who was the Gentile, who inherited nothing but Judah, who inherited everything, is sitting right here next to Abraham. That would be leaving an impression. Wait, what is he doing in that prominent place? Why is he with our father? 
He wasn't part of the family, and yet there he is. There are many scholars who believe that the parable of Lazarus here in Luke preserved a Jewish legend that Lazarus represented Abraham's servant, Eleazar, and now is put in a position of prominence. And just as Eleazar was in line to get the inheritance if Abraham had no children, but Isaac was born, and it was Eleazar who went out to find a wife for Isaac because Isaac couldn't do himself. Guy suffering from too much trauma. Dad tried to kill me way back when. I got to deal with all this stuff. But we see a faithfulness of this person to the father, Abraham. And now it seems like it's getting rewarded. So Eliezer dies with no inheritance or dies poor. And a couple more things to note. There's this chasm. The Greek word suggests a deep ravine or valley, perhaps with cliffs on each side. It says in verse 23 that it is a long way off. And it says in verse 26 there, besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass from over there can't and neither can those from here cross to us. The idea of not being able to cross or pass suggests that there is something blocking that, which would be perhaps water. That would be a reason you can't pass in a chasm. Is there such a chasm from an ancient perspective? Show the next slide, Gail. This is the great rift valley between the highlands of Transjordan and the hill country of Ephraim, where the river Jordan flows. This fault line is the greatest and longest visible chasm on earth. It's like if you live next to the Grand Canyon and you tell a story about a great canyon. Everyone go, oh, I know what canyon you're talking about. This is prominent there, right? And if you overlook parts of this chasm, you see impressive cliffs on each side, it's a wasteland and the River Jordan meandering through that. Not only that, the Jordan River symbolically represents crossing over into the promised land. On the other side is the land where the Gentiles are. And so you've got a chasm where the Gentiles are. You've got the promised land where Abraham and his descendants are. And you've got this giant chasm in between. Again, interesting. These things are, aren't in our minds because we're so far removed from them, but they would be very clear in the Jewish mind at the time of Christ. Oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about Eleazar. He's talking about the promised land. He's talking about him being over here, now being over here. And what does the rich man ask for? He wants Lazarus or Eleazar to bring him water. When you get someone water, you're serving them. Even in this scenario, the rich man sees himself as 
better than Lazarus and Lazarus having to bring him something. Have Lazarus go get me some water and bring it here to me. Have him serve me. I know we think of it as, oh, he's gonna come and you know help me out, but this is something that a servant would do. In the previous life, the rich man saw himself better than Lazarus and it seems like he may still. And I hear this echo of Jesus' words through the chasm. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must become the servant of all. Eleazar was Abraham's servant, and now he is here by his side, even though Judah was one of his sons through a son. He is separated from him because he wasn't a servant, but he wanted to be served who at the time of Jesus were wanting to be served? Who were the ones who were having such a problem with Jesus's words? It was the Pharisees who were holding on to this ethnic superiority over those around them and considering themselves to having a priority in line to God. It's interesting because he's dead. The rich man is dead, but he hasn't died. Right? He's in Hades, but he still hasn't died the kind of death that actually brings life. He's alive in death, but in profound torment because he's living with the realities of not properly dying the kind of death that actually leads a person into the only kind of life that's worth living, which is a life that looks like that of Christ, that a life that looks like that of caring for others as you would themselves. And so this story is saying a lot more than this rich guy dies and goes to hell and this poor guy dies and goes to heaven. In fact, it's not really saying that at all. Instead, it's exposing a fallacy of ethnic privilege and denouncing it and revealing a deeper truth. Now, that means a whole lot more that, that'll sing, right? That'll preach right there. That has roots that go, I, I got all these analogies going through my head. That, that, that's just speaking, right? Something else that I think is totally ignored in the traditional going to hell way of seeing this story is why is the rich man where he's at? Why did the rich man go to this place of torment? Is it because he didn't accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior? Doesn't say anything about that. The idea seems to be that he had surplus and at his gates was someone who was starving and in need and he did nothing to help him. That seems to be the the gist of the story. But we don't get that through our traditional view. It all becomes, again, moving us to a position of, well, we're privileged because we have Jesus. We're now the royalty in a different way. We're kingdoms of priests or whatever. You know, we, I'm the king's kid. Okay, but what are you doing with the guy at the gate? Because if you're not helping that person, according to this story, you're on the wrong side of the chasm. The whole point of the story seems to be that the rich man did not reach out and love his neighbor. And so it's 
addressing an individual sin, but that individual sin leads to a social construct that has effect on others besides that person. What would happen if a lot of rich people treated enough Lazaruses outside their gates like this? I know, we can't conceptually just imagine that, right? We can't think of that kind of scenario. It might lead to a huge gap between the rich and the poor. Now, just a random statistic here. Walmart's gross profit for the 12 months ending October 31st in 2023 was $155.045 billion. That 0.045, that's 450,000. That's their profit. It was up by almost 6%. Most employees are part-time and don't receive health care. They didn't see an almost 6% increase, even though Walmart had a banner year. And that's nothing compared to Amazon. Amazon's profit was $225.152 billion. That's a 14% increase from 2021. Who gets that money? Now, <laughs> I, I'm not, I know this could go to a whole political direction here. Um, <laughs> Rick's going, what are you going to say, right? What are you going to say? Are you going to say socialism? You just say that word. I've had... Um, just experiences working with different Christians down in Mexico. And the conversations have gone something like, you know, well, what good is it taking them food and clothing if you don't save their souls and they go to hell? Well, according to this story, it's a lot of good to take them food and clothing. According to this story, that's kind of the point, right? And when Jesus said, what does it profit if a man gain the world but he lose his soul? I don't think he's talking about loses soul as far as it goes to hell, but loses the identity that marks them as a person of God. See, I think in this story, the rich man lost his soul because he no longer looked like what God wants humanity to look like. And so I think this is a lot deeper than if you don't accept Jesus, you go to hell and burn forever, I think this has a lot more to it than just that. He forgot who he was in relationship to those around him. There's a Rob Bell quote. This is the next slide in his book, Love Wins. It says, often the people concerned about others going to hell when they die seem less concerned with the hells on earth right now while the people most concerned with the hells on earth right now seem the least concerned about the hell after death. It's so easy to push things off and take away our responsibility. Oh man, I just, you you need to accept Jesus. You accepted Jesus, good, I'm done. I did my job. Bye Mexico, bye Haiti, I'll see you later. I told you about Jesus. I know you're still hungry. I know you still need clothes for the kids. I know you still need help. And I know you still need a lot of things. Hey, but you have Jesus now. So don't worry, because now if you die, you'll go to heaven. 
right? Now, for a lot of people, that's okay. Because this idea of heaven or hell is so promoted that it makes it okay. But what if it's meaning something different? What if there's room to think about this differently? I think that now that we are connected in ways to people that I don't understand. In other words, how we are connected now and what happens after the now, after we die, take place, there is something that lingers. And how it lingers, I don't understand. I don't think anyone fully does. I think even the scriptures are grasping at language to try and present that what we do here echoes in eternity. That's the gladiator, by the way. Um, I love that line. But anyway... I think there's truth there. I think there's something that is happening that is, Jesus is pointing out what what you did and how you lived is important, not only now, but is important after. I think he's telling us that life is serious and we need to take how we treat others seriously. And again, my purpose And talking about these things isn't to undermine the Bible or just undermine tradition, but to give us the freedom to explore things that maybe have been blinding us from what the gospel is and has been hindering so many people from coming to a faith because of this block in the way. How can I believe in a God who would do such evil things to a poor person just because they are born in the wrong country. They're born in Afghanistan and they never grew up knowing about Jesus. And so God's gonna send them to hell even though they they were a good person, even though they were a Eleazar and did what they could to do good things. Nope, Sorry. How many people are offended by the gospel, not for the right reasons, but because of reasons that we've put there? And maybe we can start thinking about these things different and not let them hold us back from the goodness of God and the message that is in Christ. And maybe we can have conversations about what hell is, what Hades is, what Gehenna is, what Sheol, the grave is, what is meant by life after death in a different way that makes a little bit more sense than just join our club or you burn. And on that note, let's pray. God, sometimes I feel like I... I, am so ignorant to what is in the Bible that I've been reading for so long, that there's so much I don't know and I'm so far removed that I, I, I feel terrible about the things I used to believe, the things I used to teach. And Lord, I pray that we would have, again, a little more humility and we, as we approach these things so that we wouldn't come across arrogantly, that we wouldn't position ourselves in a place that we don't hold, and that we would allow stories like this to impact us because they're meant to, 
this is a strong message because these are strong truths that we need to understand. May we not try to brush them off, simplify them, and maybe we be, may we be willing to engage in a deeper conversation, even though it's foreign to us or different than what we've learned. May we allow room to grow. And do you ask this in Jesus' name? Amen. May we have ears to hear, and hearing the words of Christ, may we do what he says to life everlasting. God bless you guys. Have a tremendous week. Take care. You've been listening to the official podcast of Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. If you've been encouraged, found hope, been challenged by what you've heard, we'd like to ask you to help spread the word by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. You can also help support our podcast by visiting us at thegenesisstory.com. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.